the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show, and uh, again, follow us, danproftshow.com, podcast there, as well as Spotify and iTunes, social media at Dan Proft Show. Uh, And we begin with uh, Tiger Woods, because uh, the news came out uh, late last night that uh, after that one-car accident in which he was involved, which everybody's heard about by now, uh, he was taken into surgery. There was the briefing by uh, Los Angeles area law enforcement. Um, but uh, just the particulars of the injuries and the surgery, this from uh, the chief medical officer at uh, Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Mr. Woods suffered significant orthopedic injuries to his right lower extremity that were treated during emergency surgery by orthopedic trauma specialists. Uh, uh, Comminuted open fractures affecting both the upper and lower portions of the tibia and fibula bones were stabilized by inserting a rod into the tibia. Additional injuries to the bones of the foot and ankle were stabilized with a combination of screws and pins. Trauma to the soft muscle and soft tissue of the leg required surgical release of the covering of the muscles to relieve pressure due to swelling. So, I mean, just in terms of translating that from doc speak to understanding, basically both of those those uh, bones uh pierced his skin let me see there's so these are terrible injuries i know the reporting was thankfully they're serious but not life-threatening and thankfully they weren't and thankfully he's going to be okay and he's going to recover but it's going to be some time clearly but i mean those are serious serious leg injuries and just wanted to make sure we understand just uh the significance of of his injuries as you know one would in anticipate with the sort of rollover crash that in which he was involved also again there was uh, no indication of any impairment um, but obviously the crash is under investigation and it's a fair question to ask this is not being critical of tiger it's just because you know there was this is a guy who's been through five back surgeries he just actually is recovering from his fifth prior to this crash and there was that moment a, a few years back in florida where he was pulled over and arrested for driving while impaired because of the prescription drugs that he was on. And he shouldn't have been driving, admitted it. Prescription drugs that he was on, impairing his ability to drive, uh, recovering from a previous back surgery. So uh, anyway, uh, and and so this, of course, prompts all of the very human responses. You want the guy to get better. You're thankful that he's uh, not more seriously injured than he is, even though he's seriously injured. And uh, you reflect upon his career. And it's interesting because this occurred just as uh, just after this weekend. He's in L.A. to play host to this PGA tournament, and he had the opportunity on Sunday to talk to Jim Nance and, uh, and, and sort of preview 
whether or not he was going to be back in time recovering from back surgery uh, in, in be back in time for the Masters in April. And um, this is their conversation, a portion of it. Everybody wants to know how you're feeling, what you're doing since you've come <laughs> off your fifth uh, back operation. You feeling yeah, all right? I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling fine. I'm a little bit stiff. Um, I have one more MRI uh, scheduled so that uh, we'll see if the annulus has uh, scarred over finally and then I can start uh, doing more, more activities. But um, still in the gym, still doing... Um, the mundane stuff that you have to do for rehab, you know, the, the little things, and um, before I can start gravitating towards uh, something a little bit more. So as far as golf, what have you done since the surgery? Anything? Uh, I have lengthened my putter. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> Starts with that. Starts with that, you know, I don't have to bend over as far. Um, no, I've, I've gone to the same length as my, my sandwich. So. Because <laughs> um, I putt. I do, I do a lot, a lot of putting drills, you know, blading, um, hitting the equator with my sandwich, and I figured, well, if I do a lot with that, why don't I just lengthen my putter to the same length? So I did, and uh, it helped. So, Tiger, seven weeks from today, final round of the Masters, you're going to be there? God, I hope so. <laughs> i got to get there first. Yeah, and obviously he's not going to be there this year with the, those injuries, and... Um... Uh, who knows? Uh, it's been interesting, some of the historical comparisons that have been made to uh, Ben Hogan, because Hogan and Tiger are two of the greatest players that ever played the game, of course, arguably Tiger being the greatest, uh, because Hogan coming into the 1949 tour season uh, and his wife were involved in an accident that nearly cost both of them their lives. Also, it was a question whether Ben Hogan could walk a- again coming out of that accident and yet uh, he made his return to the PGA Tour in less than a year then went on to win the U.S. Open in 1950. Remarkable. Remarkable. Um, Perhaps uh, even more remarkable than Tiger coming back at the age of 43 to win the U.S. Open I mean excuse me to win the Masters back in 2019. And I guess my thinking on Tiger is not about golf at all even though I'm a golf fanatic. And, and I couldn't help as people are sharing their perspectives on his career and uh, their hopes that he can come back to return to play at the level to which we've come to expect from Tiger, generally speaking. Um, my thought wasn't about winning golf tournaments at all, or, or even if he comes back to the tour. My thought was two things. One is the documentary that HBO just released just a few weeks ago the two-part documentary on Tiger Woods and thinking about Tiger from the eight, you know, being a celebrity from the age of two to the present. It was, he was two years old when he appeared on the Mike Douglas show as this, you know, infant, essentially golf phenom and, um, been watched ever, ever since. And then secondly, the, uh, the, my thought with Tiger also going back just a few weeks was that, uh, PGA tournament, the father, son, and I think there were some LPGA players too, mother, son, or daughter, father, son, or daughter tournament, you know, the teams where Tiger played with his son, Charlie, who I think is 11 or 12 years old. And I mean, this kid is an incredible player, perhaps rivals Tiger at that age. So maybe Tiger's not going to catch Jack Nicholas and his uh, majors record. Charlie Woods may. And my thought uh, with respect to, to thinking about the documentary plus that is my hope for Tiger since the expectations of him from two years old on have been, number one, to be the greatest 
golfer in the history of the game, which I think he arguably achieved, but also, too, to be sort of this messianic figure that transcended golf. And I think he is one of those rare athletes that transcended the sport he played, like Jordan in basketball. But you watch the documentary, going back to that, and Earl Woods, his uh, you know, celebrated, complicated father, talks openly about not just the best in the world. That was sort of a foregone conclusion. He's going to be the best golfer the world has ever seen. He's going to be this uh, transformational figure with respect to how nations deal with one another. I mean, he was like, as I said, messianic, like he was going to heal the world, maybe with golf, maybe beyond golf. But that was sort of the vision that Earl Woods had for Tiger. And yeah, being the best golfer in the world, Tiger embraced uh, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps uh, too exclusively. And that comes out a little bit in the documentary I'm referring to, if you haven't otherwise followed his life with the detail that I have. And he's a bit of a Shakespearean figure and tragic Shakespearean figure in that way. But he never really embraced this idea that he was going to be some messianic figure for humankind. But that's a lot of weight to put on anybody, uh, much less a kid, much less carry that weight for four decades. It's an impossible standard for anybody to live up to. And of course, he failed to do so because it's impossible. So my, my thinking for Tiger is um, that that he recovers at minimum enough that he can enjoy the game with his son, Charlie, and, um, you know, in large measure do for Charlie what Earl did for him with maybe um, um, some lessons learned from Earl that he can pay forward to Charlie and some lessons learned through his own life that he can pay forward to Charlie and uh, that he continues to serve as a global ambassador for the game. But, Have we learned nothing with respect to the iconization of uh, sports figures and and politicians and artists of all sorts? This idea of adulation, treating them as otherworldly. They may have an otherworldly talent, but that doesn't make them, you know, non-human or more to the point how they're treated, superhuman. Maybe it's time to lower our expectations for Tiger and lower the associated pressure with those expectations, uh, tone down the adulation, celebrate his achievements, celebrate all that he has been through, celebrate him when he comes back and recovers and you look forward to the day when he's on a golf course and, and, and returns and tips the cap to the crowd and so forth. But um, learn some of the lessons of, I don't know, the general population's conduct over Tiger's four decades in the spotlight, too. This is Dan Pond. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show normally i'm not one to agree with uh, house speaker nancy pelosi but uh, maybe after yesterday's uh, senate hearing into the january 6th rioting and violence at the capitol I uh, am 
prepared to agree with Nancy Pelosi for a 9-11 style commission to investigate what occurred in the lead up to and on the day of January 6th, not for the reason she thinks, but um, very much as is the case when evidence is the requirement, because I think it will undo the story that the left is telling about January 6th. And yesterday was a bit confusing to me because you had the local police saying that it was a coordinated attack and politicians saying it was coordinated. And we've talked about that previously based on what we knew when we knew it, which is the idea of like people setting pipe bombs, people coming with particular weapons, some of the suggestion that, yes, there, there were definitely some people there that planned to be disruptive if and, and, and violent. But then that calls into question, okay, well then, then if there was FBI telegraphing you that this might occur, what was your response? And after saying it was coordinated, at least the acting Metro Police chief said the district did not have intelligence pointing to a coordinated assault on the Capitol. But the Washington Post has previously reported about uh, an FBI memo that suggests they did have intelligence. And so that wasn't shared. And then we have the, the House Sergeant at Arms suggesting that he didn't have a conversation with former Capitol Police chief that the, Capitol, the former Capitol Police chief says they did have. Then you have the additional wrinkle of former Trump chief of staff, Mark Meadows, saying there was an offer made because President Trump greenlighted it from DOD to local authorities to provide National Guard support in advance of January 6th, and that was declined. So, yeah, may maybe there is some fleshing out to do. Oh, by the way, it's interesting to listen to politicians like Amy Klobuchar, who voted to convict the president for inciting a riot say that it was a coordinated attack. Well, if it was a coordinated attack, and if these, uh, and, and as these law enforcement officials described, it started 20 minutes before President Trump's speech concluded at the ellipse, then how did he incite something that was coordinated? I mean, if you want to charge him as a conspirator, suggest he was a conspirator, he was behind this, he organized it. Okay, you go ahead and make that assertion, and then you provide evidence to support that, but you can't have it both ways. You can't make a charge for which you have no evidence and suggest it was something else for which you have no evidence. Actually, you can't make a charge that runs counter to the evidence and then say, well, but this is what really happened, and I have no evidence to support that, which is what Amy Klobuchar did, for example. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Roger Kimball, editor of New Criterion. Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yes. My pleasure. They didn't have double standards. They wouldn't have any standards at all. <laughs> Precisely. But I, we bring you on because, you know, we're just um, rubes out in the Midwest. We don't understand uh, the, the wily <laughs> yeah. ways of yeah. Washington, D.C. And so we want you to clarify <laughs> what we just described so you can make it make sense. Yeah. Well, you know, it really is. We, we've come to the point now where, you know, all I think the, the goodwill and the idea that these people are just trying to do their best. Nobody believes that anymore. They understand that this is a purely partisan, manufactured tort that has no basis in reality at all. The president incited nothing. He suggested that his that the crowd go patriotically and peacefully to the Capitol. Now, I do believe that he ought to have understood that a crowd can turn into a mob on the turn of the dime. So that's, you know, he... He, he bears some responsibility for what happened. But what did happen? You know, the premise of the whole impeachment thing was that somehow five people were murdered by pro-Trump 
activists. Well, that's not what happened at all. It's not what I, you know, the, 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 the one shot that I think was fired was fired by an unnamed police officer and killed a, a pro-Trump activist, that young lady. That, that was a, a tragedy. Why he shot her, it's a little unclear. One person was outside the Capitol and had a heart attack, a, another pro-Trump person. Another person died of a stroke. One lady, she was part of a throng and she died. And then Brian Sicknick, who was another pro-Trump person, by the way, you know, he was supposed to have been bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher, but he wasn't. That was a totally made-up tort by the New York Times, circulated again and again and again, picked up by the Washington Post, picked up by National Review, supposed to be the face of impeachment. It turns out to be completely made up. Uh, he didn't. He left. He texted his family that he was fine, and he died. We don't know quite yet how he died, but there's no, no fire extinguishers <laughs> were involved. Well, and, and, and so, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, her demagoguery on the topic, call for a 9-11 mm-hmm. style commission because she thinks this is going to be revelatory to her benefit. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I know you wrote in Am Greatness, I think, that you support the idea of a commission because you think it'll boomerang on her. So do I. But, but here's the thing. Are, are we in a place in America just sort of using this as an example, you know, where to, to borrow from Churchill, you know, sometimes men – stumble upon the truth and most quickly pick themselves up and move beyond it like it never yeah, happened. Move on, yeah. yeah, I mean, that that sort of yeah. seems where we're at, and and it seems like that's what uh, the Dem Socialists count on, and Republicans don't have the stick they do. It pains me to say, but I think that the um, the left is far more persistent, far more organized, and far more wily uh, than, than conservatives. It, you know, conservatives want to be left alone and they want to leave you alone. The Democrats want to run your life. I think Lenin said that uh, what is communism? It means keeping track of everything. <clears throat> and that's what the left wants to do. Now they've, you know, be, be under the cover of COVID, they've discovered that the American people are sheep. Wear a mask, stay home, quiver under your bed, Close your business. Okay, fine, terrific. We'll, we're happy to do that. You know, two weeks to slow the spread. Remember that? Uh, that was that was a year ago. You know, I'm in I'm in the Charleston, South Carolina at the moment. Very sunny here, but, but you know, all every people are walking around everywhere with masks. It's insane. Well, um, you, you know, it, speaking of of that and what is becoming revelatory, what you know, you learn with some distance and some fact checking about things like all that transpired at the Capitol on January 6th. You also mm-hmm. learned so much about uh, so many of the actors that played such an instrumental role in opposing Trump and deposing Trump, I would argue. And uh, mm-hmm. one of those is mm-hmm. Bill Crystal, formerly yeah. of the Weekly Standard, who's now over at the Bulwark. And uh, this is just a fascinating piece he wrote for the Bulwark. What about Joe? Why can't yes, anti-Trump become work with Biden? So those never-Trumpers who are trying to salvage the Republican Party and the good name of conservatism are now penning thought pieces about how never-Trump can morph into work with Biden to advance socialism. Yeah, I'm afraid so. I, you know, I, I know Bill a little bit and I like him, but I don't understand what's happened to him. Uh, you know, I thought he was a conservative, but I, I, I guess I was wrong about that. And by, by the way, what does conservative mean? It means that you want to conserve what's best and most vital in your tradition. What's the opposite? Well, a socialist is somebody who is opposed to private property, wants to, you know, is big on centralizing uh, the government. The more government, the better. Uh, so I, I'm, you know, sh- I'm frankly shocked that he should take this position. Joe Biden is on the threshold of senility, and I'm not sure which side of the threshold. Uh, he's a puppet, uh, and um, 
it, it to me is just mind-boggling that that he he would write such a piece. But I I think the calculation is that the Democrats are going to be in power for a while, and he wants to be on the side where the uh, gravy flows from. Yeah, that's a real principled stand. Uh, Roger Kimball. It's kind of like like yeah. uh, Groucho Marx. If you don't, these are my principles, if you don't like them, I have others. Indeed. Uh, Roger Kimball, editor of New Criterion. Roger, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Um, We uh, turn our attention to this uh, provocative piece in The Atlantic as to the Trump amendments to the Constitution. You say Trump didn't amend the Constitution. Uh, the author of the piece, Jonathan Rauch, disagrees. Not formally he didn't amend it in consultation with states and or Congress, but uh, informally he did in five significant ways, and he suggests that those informal normative amendments to the way that uh, our representative republic operates by Trump represents a danger to the future of said republic. Well, let's go through them, shall we? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jonathan Rausch. He is a contributing writer at The Atlantic National and National Journal and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to meet you, Dan. Yeah, good to meet you. And so this, uh, let's let's just go, you know, one through five, because they're all um, good discussion fodder. Uh, first is uh, with respect to impeachment, impeachments, plural, I should say. And uh, your suggestion that uh, uh, no president, the, the new amendment per Trump is no president gets removed if he's got a minority of the Senate that that will protect him. And I well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll let you start and suggest why that you why, why you think that's the case and and how that differs than what the founders envisioned, making the removal of a president from office something that was going to be a very high bar. So it didn't it didn't devolve into strict partisan politics. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll begin by just making the broad point about the article, that it's about presidential power and how over time presidents have accumulated more and more power at the expense of Congress. And that is not what the founders intended. They wanted the Congress, the closest branch to the people, to be the most important branch. And this is not something that's new to Trump. It's been going on now for several decades. And my argument is not that, you know, Donald Trump came along out of the blue and overturned everything. It's that we're seeing the culmination of some trends, which have some pretty broad implications for democracy. So, yeah, I tried to figure out five ways in which that was happening. Well, yeah, I mean, just impeachment. Yeah. Well, just sorry to interrupt, but I mean, yeah, right. Art Schlesinger wrote the book, The Imperial Presidency in 1973. So, I mean, uh, and and Richard Neustadt's presidential power in the 60s. So, right. I mean, it's it's just interesting. That's that's, right. And I. Yes, that's I I just go ahead. Go ahead. that all of the things that I'm talking about here have earlier precedents before mm-hmm. Trump. So mm-hmm. that's important to remember. But the first one on impeachment is impeachment's the only mechanism to remove a malfeasant um, officer of the federal government. There's really no other way to do it. And it was designed for a period without any political parties. The founders thought, well, you know, Congress will just get together and they'll, uh, they'll act institutionally as Congress. They'll protect their own prerogatives and they'll get rid of a president who's who's behaving badly. Well, that started to break down in 1998 when the Democrats 
basically supported Bill Clinton on a partisan basis. But those were, you know, pretty minor. Trump was impeached twice, both for serious things. I'd argue the second time for just a terrible thing. And um, I was protected by uh, members of his own party, not even all of them. But what that showed is that impeachment is kind of a dead letter for a president who can get support of a significant fraction of his party. And that's kind of a permission slip for presidents to worry not about staying on the right side of their law, but on the right side of their party. And that's that's not what James Madison had in mind. Well, but with with the thinking about that, I mean, certainly um, Nixon resigned from office rather than be removed because he had lost the support of his party. So it, it seems to me that something where you have uh, a president dead to rights on doing something that is a high crime and or misdemeanor, as uh, Nixon did, then um, – you know, that you will have members of your own party that think about their political survival, which is what all politicians are generally thinking about, and will move on their a president of their party. Uh, it just wasn't a, a, a good enough evidentiary case, either round one or round two, for the Democrats and, and the, the public to be convinced that uh, that Republicans should move on their the president from their party. Well, that's that's certainly one way to look at it. I you know, substantively don't don't agree that the case wasn't strong, especially the second time around. Um, I, I would agree with the House managers who said if if you won't remove a president for doing something like this, bringing a, a, um, a riot to the streets, I don't know if he intended a capital invasion, I kind of doubt that, but bringing him into the streets, what would you? But we could set that disagreement aside and just ask ourselves, well, suppose you're you're the next president, you know, whether you're from the, the left or the right, and you look at the record that's of the last 30 years, and especially the Trump years, how worried are you about impeachment now? Uh, what do you think it is that will actually lead your party to abandon you in the Senate? And if you probably think, well, probably nothing. As long as I keep my ties to my party strong, as long as I worry about that, then then I don't really need to worry about impeachment. At least I think that's the conclusion I would draw. Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm there, but um, I want to come back and, uh, and get to some of the other uh, amendments you suggest. Again, normative, not uh, actual amendments that uh, occurred under the Trump presidency as uh, the power of the presidency in America continues its expansion as it has over the last 50 years. More with uh, Jonathan Rausch right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Jonathan Rausch. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and National Journal, Journal excuse me, senior fellow at the Brookings Institutions, and he's uh, written this uh, think piece over at The Atlantic uh, entitled The five Trump amendments to the Constitution, informal. And we were talking about the first with respect to impeachment. Let's move on so we can cover more turf here. The Second Amendment, I think actually we would agree on, even though we may be coming from some different uh, perspectives uh, philosophically. And uh, the Second Amendment relates to congressional oversight and uh, that what is mandated has now become optional with respect to Congress. Yeah, it's just uh, it's just very hard now for Congress to to get documents from the executive branch, to get testimony for the executive branch if the executive doesn't want to provide it. And that, too, that's a trend that's been going on for years. And, you know, it actually began under George Washington when Congress started asking him for stuff. 
uh, but nothing like what we saw under President Trump, where he just he just flatly stonewalled. He just said, "You get nothing." Period. And you know, an earlier president could have done that, but but they didn't. And the result of that was showing that Congress really lacked the ability uh, to respond to that. So from now on, I think we've got a precedent that's going to going to give the president a lot more power. Uh, to avoid oversight. Well, it's interesting too, though. Even you know, there is this. Uh, un- speaking of things that are unofficial, this unofficial fourth branch of government, uh, the bureaucracy, the administrative state, and um, it, it, part of what I would say with respect to congressional oversight, it runs in a couple of different directions, or the lack thereof. You had a, a president. You had a majority in the Senate for a short time. You had a majority in the House as well. Um, but but this, a president plus a Senate majority was unable to get documents it wanted from particular administrative agencies and law enforcement agencies over the course of a number of topic areas as well. And that was a source of frustration for uh, individuals like Ron Johnson, the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. Now, you may agree or not agree with uh, the position that uh, a Senate committee chairman was taking. But in terms of the oversight responsibility that Congress has, and so for Homeland Security Committee, specific agencies, sort of undeniable. So it's interesting that the the administrative state can also frustrate even the majority party, if you will, and the president. Yeah, well, they can if the uh, – well, I don't know if they can frustrate the president because if the president just says flatly, you got to produce the documents, I think, I think then they will. Uh, but yeah, there are lots of levels at which the executive branch can can frustrate these things. But the the big point here is what power does Congress have? You know, if Congress says, you know, in the Fast and Furious investigation, for example, in the Obama years, says, look, you guys are stonewalling. We've had enough. We're defunding the Pentagon until you produce documents. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the way the Constitution's supposed to work. But we all know there's no way Congress can do that because it's too dangerous to defund the Pentagon, and it's politically toxic. And and what's been revealed in the last few years is there's really not much Congress can do if the executive branch just says, go away, we don't want oversight. And that's something I would think conservatives, constitutional conservatives, would be concerned about. Yeah, I agree. agree. Um, Amendment number three, we'll stick with uh, Congress. Congressional appropriations shall, shall be suggestions. Uh, and the president, the executive, can choose whether or not to comply with the spending laws Congress passes. Uh, illustrate that. Not a new fight. It certainly happened under Nixon when Nixon refused to spend money Congress appropriated. But Congress hit back in the 70s. They passed a law and said, Mr. President, you need to do what we say. And that worked for a while. But as we've seen more partisan gridlock on Capitol Hill, We've seen more and more efforts by presidents to circumvent that by spending the way they want to spend. And once again, uh, President Trump brought that to a new level by just flatly declaring an emergency on the southern border and dipping into the Pentagon accounts to fund the border wall. And that was that may have been legal uh, to some extent. I can't mm-hmm. remember how the court cases came out. But to go back to our the overall point you and I have been discussing, Dan, what could Congress do about it? Well... It turned out basically nothing. Well, this is, uh, and, and I know ultimately he had a Supreme Court decision that, that backed it up, but I mean, this is also 
uh, exec, you know, doing things by executive fiat that run afoul of federal law and just saying, I know this runs afoul of federal law, but uh, I'm going to do it anyway. And then the courts can ultimately weigh in if they so choose. And this is Obama's designations with uh, with the DACA program. And then uh, ultimately during the Trump administration, the uh, court suggesting in a, in a wild decision that has real implications for presidential power going forward that um, you you can't undo something a previous president did even illegally without going through an administrative process. You can't just undo one executive order with another, even if that executive order was illicit. Uh, I don't know, actually, if that cuts for presidential power or against it. I mean, I guess if you can overrule uh, federal law, then it sort of cuts for presidential power, doesn't it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the weeds on that particular decision. As, as I understood it, the president could make that change, but not quickly. It would have to go through the whole rulemaking process, which takes years. Right. So I the, thought that was a procedural decision. The, the but, subsequent. But sure, but the yeah, the subsequent. Making, yes. I think yeah. it's right. Yeah. Which is um, DACA, I think, on the law, I think personally it was legal, but I also think it was unwise because it was another of these maneuvers to circumvent Congress, and it was another instance where Congress was not able to rise to the challenge of reasserting its power. So, again, this is not a new thing, but it's something I think everyone should be concerned about. Uh, and uh, let's get uh, – we only have time for one more, so I, um, I think I want to stick with number four um, the, uh, the, with respect to presidential appointments. And um, you suggest that uh, under Trump – uh, this, uh, again, rose to a new level, the idea that the president has the authority to make appointments as he sees fit without the advice and consent of the Senate. Yep. Again, not brand new, but taken by Trump to a, a way new level is evading the uh, the Senate process of advice and consent on appointments by using acting and temporary officials. And he can do that for up to two and a half years, and right. then he can file a lawsuit and continue it. So that's, that gets around the Senate's most important mechanism for holding officials accountable. He is Jonathan Rausch, contributing writer at The Atlantic, which we were just discussing his piece there, and National Journal. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institutions. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As uh, I suspect these uh, moments will be relatively few and far between, it's important to note them. I'm talking about moments of pushback from the big government press corps against the Biden administration, any appendage of the Biden administration, perhaps uh, with the notable exception of Peter Ducey as part of the White House press corps. Maybe one exception will be. We'll see. It was a good uh, moment yesterday. Matt Lee, a longtime AP reporter, challenging Biden State Department spokesman Ned Price on uh, – 
the accomplishments of the Biden administration in nary a month on the job. Take a listen. It's a bit disingenuous to claim credit for the 18 companies winding down. All of this work was done under the previous administration. Matt, you I'm guys not, have only been in month for, Matt, I mean, only been in office for a month, I, right? Are you telling me that in the last Matt, four I'm, weeks, these 18 companies all of a sudden decide to say, oh, my God, we better not do Matt, anything with I am, I am speaking for the all United, of that. I am taking, speaking. You guys are taking credit for stuff that the Matt, previous administration Matt, did. Right? I, I, I am not. No? I am yes speaking no? for the Department of State. Okay. The all people right. who have been working this, okay. the people who are working this now, were the same people a month ago, were the same people three months ago, three four months, months ago. ago. So okay. I. All right. Well, uh, you can understand why Matt Lee would be defensive, uh, you know, if you're even-handed journalist like uh, he, you know, has demonstrated himself to be through the years. And certainly in that exchange with uh, State Department flack, by the way, that's, uh, you know, where Psaki came from back in the day during the uh, Obama administration. But this was about uh, describing what they're doing to um, take a hard line on Russia and scale back the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany which was, as Matt Lee properly pointed out, started by the Trump administration. Now they're picking up and running with it, and that's good that 18 companies are scaling back their involvement, but it's not something that uh, they accomplish. Uh, however, it would be nice and good for Matt Lee for challenging him to remember the hard line that Trump actually took policy-wise with respect to Putin and Russia amid all of the ongoing, to this day, Russian collusion propaganda, the left, including all the leftists at the leadership level in this administration, the Biden one, continue to propagate. So, you know, if uh, poor Ned Price got a little bit of pushback from Matt Lee to make sure that he clarified, spokesman clarified that it's holdover personnel that were part of that were directed by the previous administration, continuing to do the work that was authorized and initiated by the previous administration. Good for him for taking up that uh, charge just as it would be nice to see more pushback when the Biden administration comes out and claims to ha be setting new auspicious goals for things like vaccinations, which were, you know, the, the previous administration's accomplishments before the handover took place, or with respect to school reopenings, which describe uh, something actually less than is occurring out of you know, out in most of the country and uh, the Biden administration getting caught a couple of times in just the first month talking about the accomplishments that they have made in their uh, few short weeks in office that are actually nothing more than just claiming credit for previous work. But, you know, we are talking about an administration headed by a plagiarist. So you can understand the idea that uh, expropriating other people's work is sort of a calling card of this president. This is the end. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. In uh, response to uh, the ongoing proclamations from uh, St. Tony Fauci of COVID-19, such as uh, most recently that uh, just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you're able to go out and do things like dine indoors or go see a movie. State of Florida, state of South Dakota, few others notwithstanding, despite the idea that you should be under continued lockdown restrictions, even after being vaccinated. Uh, Scott Atlas, Dr. Scott Atlas, formerly of Stanford, formerly of the Trump administration's 
uh, COVID response team. I went on with Hannity last night to um, you know, sort of frame this discussion with a question that people should be considering as these proclamations continue, even as there is so much encouraging news coming out, including today. This happened, of course, after the interview last night. But today, the FDA announcing that it has uh, deemed the Johnson & Johnson single jab vaccine safe and effective. So there's the third American vaccine to come online or will be shortly. Here's what Scott Atlas had to say. So we're talking about a huge percentage of people that have immunity from either the infection and now the vaccine. The point of this is to stop people from dying and lead a normal life. The point is not to be fearful for the rest of our lives about, oh, what if scenarios? What if there's a new variant? What if there's new pandemics? I mean, this is the point. We have to ask, what is the time that we can lead a normal life? And as we get the, the high risk people protected with vaccines, vaccination voluntarily, I hope, uh, we then can open up and we should open up right now many things, including the schools, as has been said, ad nauseum. That's the data. Remember, this is a virus that the overwhelming majority of people do well with. This is not the bubonic plague. We're not underestimating its seriousness, but we still see, you know, 99.5% of people survive if you're under 70. And of people who are high risk and elderly, we want to get enough of them vaccinated. And with the radioactive word here, herd immunity of the infected people and with the vaccinated people, they will be protected and we should be opening up. And there's no reason to sit there and invoke fear in everybody as a permanent part of American life. That's sort of the uh, same direction that Dr. Joseph Ladapo took in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, the Universal Vaccination Chimera. He's a Joseph Ladapo Associate Professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Ladapo joins us again. Doc, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. So, I mean, it seems like we've been battling this construct from the beginning, which is how do you want to live your life? Do you want to live your life with uh, under worst case scenario sort of protocols or do you want to live your life under most likely scenario protocols? And that tension persists. You're absolutely correct. It really shouldn't even be an argument. We know that it makes no sense to live life in some fearful way where you are continuously worried about different possibilities. I mean, we actually have a, a medical clinical diagnosis for that. So that's not the way to live life. And we've seen so much uh, loneliness, so much um, unhappiness, so much conflict over the past year. It is far beyond time to get beyond that. And uh, you, you write in your piece about uh, the, the mutations. This has become an issue that has been, you know, arguably used by those peddling fear to continue to peddle fear. Well, what about the variants and, and the thing is mutating? And so we still have to be in sort of a lockdown posture and so forth. And, you know, part of this is a question of some of these 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 mRNA vaccines and sort of how they evolve with the evolving virus, as I understand it, or the mutating virus. Do they mutate with the mutated virus? And then the other aspect is just what you, what you wrote about it as well, in part, in your Wall Street Journal piece, which is you know, you're not going to get to zero risk. You're not going to get to zero infections. That is not realistic, and you have to live on this mortal coil. Yeah, that's correct. And there is uncertainty. We really don't know what will happen in the future. We never did. But what we do know and what has been the case has been that the vast majority of people, as Dr. Atlas was saying on that interview, are fine. So 
until we have information that suggests that large swaths of the population are actually at high risk of having serious illness, it makes absolutely no sense to take draconian measures. Uh, there's a, a piece in The Atlantic uh, by Joe Pinsker, who's a staff writer there. And he talks to a bunch of public health experts, uh, Brown and elsewhere. And here's his summation of the timeline for a return to something approach, approaching pre-COVID-19 normalcy. He describes this by season, an uncertain spring, uh, an amazing summer as uh, more opening occurs, a cautious fall and winter, and then finally in 2022, uh, maybe we get some more permanent relief, including at some point when Dr. Fauci so declares it, uh, the removal of our masks. We'll see. Is that a fair? Is that a, is that how you think about this? So I have I don't know the writer and I have nothing against him. But what I hope your listeners and every American will understand is that it is, in my opinion, completely ridiculous. I and mean, we really need to just be done with these uh, draconian measures and get on with it. It's just it's completely ludicrous. I, I just I, I really hope that more Americans wake up to this. It's completely crazy. What's your sort of self-assessment of your profession and, uh, and, and what evolution, if any, have you seen over the last year? Oh, that's a great question. I, I'm really, I love being a doctor. I love taking care of patients. And I know that for most of my colleagues, that's also true. And we take a tremendous amount of pride in what we do clinically. The challenge with this virus and the pandemic policy is that Many of us physicians don't have a background in health policy. We don't have a background in health economics or economics in general. And we don't have a background in anthropology. We don't have a background in sociology. And, and coming up with policy, thinking about how to run a society while you're dealing with a pandemic is something that requires pulling together more than one field, not just clinical medicine. I mean, if you just pull, pull if you just rely on clinical medicine, you get what we got which is this, basically this, uh, this, just this narrow view of what health means. And basically for the past year, health has been defined as not getting infected with COVID-19. But we know anyone who, uh, anyone who thinks about what uh, the things that, that motivate humans and make us productive and help and contribute to our happiness know, of course, that health is more than avoiding infection by COVID-19. So unfortunately, many physicians have been making recommendations that ultimately, ironically, may be helpful for reducing COVID-19, but are not helpful for advancing human health. And that's that's where we are. Yeah, and and I think your your piece about the the universal vaccine vaccination uh, uh, chimera, the the idea that um you know, getting to uh, uh, a zero risk world is as improbable uh, as is impossible. I shouldn't say improbable, impossible with respect to infectious disease as it is with respect to, you know, driving. Um, and and, uh, and and we're seeing this play out with schools, aren't we? I mean, where you basically have an environment with study after uh, you have study after study that describes the environment that research is, you know, credible research into the environment that suggests there's you know, basically no transmission, particularly student to teacher. And yet it's still in so many quarters, a protracted fight every step of the way to get kids back in school. 
even though there's a universal, at least rhetorical support for the idea that kids should be in school and in-person learning is better than Zoom learning. I, I think the school example and the recalcitrance of so many to get back to what we understand to be true because you can imagine some risk that may be lurking despite this mountain of evidence. Boy, that suggests just how difficult it's going to be you know, sort of psychologically to get a, a certain percentage of the population back to normalcy no matter who declares what when. It, it, it really is devastating. And I, I want to acknowledge, as you said, that, that you know, there are concerns about risk from the teachers. However, the data from multiple countries now shows that that risk is very, very, very low. And even where it's higher for teachers that may be at increased risk, there are options. For example, those teachers could teach remotely or even take other options that allow the children to be in school with someone else overseeing the classroom that's lower risk. These are not complex solutions. And it's, it's really, I mean, the, the degree of devastation with what we are doing with the children is probably something that we'll be writing about for, uh, for years because it's the, the disruption for many children of their social network, their friendships, their development, their stability uh, is 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 just uh, it's got to be uh, just devastating for so many children, and it's it's unbelievably harmful. He is Dr. Joseph Ladapo, associate professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Joseph Ladapo, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. All right, thanks, Dr. Take care. Well, we're- seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show good op-ed in the wall street journal by its editorial board the ice cold reality is that grid regulators across the united states are struggling to keep power on during extreme weather They've been able to avoid more blackouts by earning energy conservation, but Texas shows that conservation isn't enough. Progressives want to make Americans even more dependent on the grid by banning gas hookups in homes, mandating electric cars. This is a recipe for blackouts nationwide as coal and nuclear plants retire because they can't compete against subsidized renewables. In fact, they uh, cite New England's grid operator in 2018 predicted outages in the winter of 2024-2025 in most cases it analyzes the nature of the composition of energy sources is altered by the subsidies in one direction to the exclusion of others, at least at the respective levels. And uh, they are quick to remind us, yes, that um, various aspects of the grid failed, but it was wind energy in Texas that performed the worst uh, over the last two weeks when you had those shutdowns, uh, the power outages. For more on all of this, uh, we spoke about uh, him a little bit earlier in the week when we were talking about the grid and talking about what happened in Texas because he gave an extended interview to the Epoch Times, which was uh, illuminating. I want to continue to do the postmortem on Texas as well as talk more generally speaking about energy policy. He is Jason Isaac. Texas Public, uh, He's with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and uh, he joins us now. Jason, thanks for, so much for being with us. Appreciate it. That's no, great to be on. Thanks for having me. So uh, just, just give us quickly your 
understanding of what happened uh, in Texas with respect to the uh, the failures that uh, you know negatively impacted were such a disaster for so many people. Yeah, well, and, and you talked about the foundation, talking about market distorting policies of subsidies, the advantages that wind and solar unreliable sources of generation have over our thermal generation, which is clean coal, nuclear, and natural gas. Uh, I wrote about this last summer, warning that had it not been for the COVID pandemic, that this would have happened in August, and it actually almost happened in August, even with the shutdown. And it's because our reserve margins are so low. Ten years ago, we had 20% extra electricity available to meet peak demand, and now we have nothing. And it's it got down to 2% this past summer, uh, and that's going to continue to be the case because you can't compete in a market that is so distorted when wind and solar get incredible advantages that the thermal producers don't get, and, and the market has responded accordingly, and we've seen a net decrease of thermal generation being built and a massive, almost 200% increase of unreliable generation and wind and solar being built. Then you couple that with some bad decisions that were made with the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, not recognizing that this was happening when it was happening on late Valentine's night, early President's Day morning, and power plants tripped, and we lost more generation because of bad decisions made by people at the helm of ERCOT. There was a, an op-ed from a... Uh energy broker named James Cargas in Washington Monthly about this, and he uh, provided a little historical context. Uh, he rem- uh, reminded uh, readers of this storm in February of 2011, another polar vortex, freezing temperature descended upon much of Texas. Gas generators saw their equipment freeze, become unavailable. Then then wind generation was a minor portion of ERCOT's capacity. The impact was blackouts impacting 3.2 million consumers that lasted hours, not days. And ERCOT called on generators, gas producers, wind turbines to weather weatherize their equipment. Not everyone complied. He describes this as this crisis over the last several weeks as not one of lack of transmission lines or energy generation, power generation. The infrastructure is already in place, he writes. The crisis was primarily the result of failed preparation and planning. And otherwise, otherwise, he's saying essentially this was human error and it was preventable human error because Texas, as he says, has been to this rodeo before just nine years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah, that was my first month in legislative session, my first month in office when that happened. Uh, and, and you're right. We asked plants to winterize, but then we don't give them the opportunity to pass those costs on to consumers. And when they're competing against sometimes electricity, like what happened just a couple of days ago on Saturday, our spot prices for electricity went negative and the cheapest electricity at the point of generation gets priority access to our grid and that's wind and solar. And they're literally paying customers to take their product. And a company that's producing natural gas, fired electricity, they can't compete with that. And that's exactly what has happened. And to say that we don't have enough generation or that we have enough generation is completely false. Our population has grown significantly, our GDP has grown significantly, and reliable generation has decreased. That's what put us in this situation, and that's why we at the Texas Public Policy Foundation have been warning about this for years and knew that this was coming. I quite honestly thought it would happen in an August, not necessarily in a, in a cold February, but how soon we forget. Uh, now, uh, you've had uh, uh, leftist uh, commentators uh, take the Texas Public Policy Foundation to task for suggesting that the storm never would have been an issue had our grid not been so deeply penetrated by renewable energy sources. The criticism, a uh, good example of this is over at NPR, that statement focuses on windmills, for example, ignores the evident fact that, as Governor Abbott acknowledged on local TV, every kind of power generation fell short in the storm. 
And while that's true, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, wind generation fell the shortest of them all. So there is some truth to what you and uh, and the Texas Public Policy Foundation was saying about the unreliable energy sources, as you're describing. Yeah, and I think wind from February 8th to February 16th, if you look at the production, I think wind dropped off 93% generation. Natural gas picked up 450%. So when when ERCOT, our grid manager, began the rolling outages, they actually rolled the Permian Basin and shut off power in the largest natural gas and oil field, I believe, in the world. And our natural gas supply went to less than 25 percent of what it was just the day before. And so guess where that natural gas is going to power plants. So if natural gas failed, it was because man made a decision. But those that were operating and online increased their production 450 percent. The only generation sources that we have in Texas that improved and increased production were fossil fuels. And the leftists have been demonizing them for decades, indoctrinating our kids. But last week, they saved countless, countless lives. Well, it's there was a, a real twist, uh, ironic twist, and I, I don't mean to be flippant about it because this was life and death situation. But the uh, federal government, what did they send in? Diesel power generators. It's the same thing that Microsoft uh, sent in to one of their data centers in Silicon Valley because of all the rolling outages that California has experienced and will continue to experience. It's just not doable. And we found that out the hard way. And you're going to have over 40 people who lost their lives because of the cold snap last week. Uh, and it's just unfortunate and it shouldn't have happened. And, and I'm, I'm, it happened during a legislative session. And I think there's going to be some serious attention paid to it. So uh, those on the left who took uh, the opportunity of this uh, uh, disaster in Texas to criticize free markets as if this was a failure of markets. I think you've addressed that with the subsidies of the government picking winners and losers. And, you, and as usual, the losers are the, the general public. The other criticism has been uh, in the direction of federalism. Uh, those in D.C. don't like federalism. They like central planning. And uh, if Texas just wasn't such a go-it-alone state, if they had been connected to the national grid, then this wouldn't have happened. Uh, th- that's not true either. And we're going to fight like crazy to keep our grid part of Texas and, and keep its independence. You're already seeing there's projections that there's going to be 28 gigawatts or 28,000 megawatts short of electricity in the western interchange in that grid. And California is going out and buying that electricity now. And that's going to impact Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, all those states that are in that grid. They're going to be the ones that are suffering rolling outages because of California's leftist policies that are pushing these this green bling and renewable dreams on people. (laughs) Uh, Jason Isaac is a former Texas state legislator. He is also the director of Life Powered at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. So, uh, let me understand this. It's okay to have, quote-unquote, children in cages... So long as it's only temporary, how else to explain uh, the previous statements by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris during the Trump administration, amplified, of course, by a hysterical D.C. press corps, 
uh, about uh, juvenile detention facilities at the border and square that with the announcement that the Biden administration is reopening the juvenile detention facility at the border. This was the back and forth between Jen Psaki and Steve Ducey's kid there, who's actually, Peter is becoming a, a good reporter. I mean, I, I shouldn't belittle him by suggesting he's only there for nepotism. Maybe nepotism got him in the door, but he's actually doing quite a good job. So I want to recognize that. Yeah, he, he raised this issue because who else in the press corps is going to if, if not him? So it's a temporary reopening during COVID-19. Our intention is very much to close it, but we want to ensure that we can follow COVID, COVID protocols uh, as, we, uh, as, we, as unaccompanied minors come into the United States. So, so again, her explanation is... Because COVID, it's okay to put children in cages. Now, I'm not saying children in cages was accurate. It was inaccurate. It was a hysterical, hyperbolic characterization of what was happening at the border. It was the effort by people like AOC, who referred to them as concentration camps, to demagogue the president, to demagogue federal law enforcement officials, to demagogue Republicans. And a lot of people bought it. And I, you hear from people who say, you know, I, I don't know what to make of everything, but that children in cages thing, that, that, that just so bothered me. That was really bad. And so um, after that explanation of, oh, so it's okay temporarily to put people in concentration camps? Your description, Ducey's pushback generated uh, the subsequent... Uh, bailing of water by Saki. But it's the same facility that was open for a month in the Trump administration, summer 2019. That is when Joe Biden said, under Trump, there have been horrifying scenes at the border of kids being kept in cages. And Kamala Harris said, uh, basically, babies in cages is a human rights abuse being committed by the United States government. So how is this any different than that? We very much feel that way. Uh, and so the, these are facilities. Let me be, let me be clear here. One, there's a pandemic going on. I'm sure you're not suggesting that we have children right next to each other uh, in ways that are not COVID safe, are you? I'm suggesting that Kamala Harris said that this facility, putting people in this facility, was a human rights abuse committed by the United States government. And Joe Biden said, under Trump, there have been horrifying scenes of border uh, at the border of kids being kept in cages. Now it's not under Trump; it's under Biden. This is not kids being kept in cages. This is this facility. is kids. This is a facility that was opened that's going to follow the same standards as other HHS facilities. It is not a replication. Certainly not. The, that's that is never our intention of replicating the immigration policies of the past administration, but we are in a circumstance where we are not going to expel unaccompanied minors at the border. That would be inhumane. So we're, um, it's not, we're, we're, we're not doing that. It's not our intention to replicate policies of the previous administration, but we are doing that, but we're only doing it temporarily. So what we characterize as inhumane, because that was a policy dealing with a, a surge of children and, and migrants at the border, that was inhumane when they did it, but because it's not our intention to do what they were doing, it's humane. Uh, so what was concentration camps under President Trump uh, generates just a plaintive wail from the Jim Acostas of the world. Jim Acosta tweeting uh, in response to this policy development. Can't we be the country that doesn't do this to migrant children? Mm -hmm. Well, that, but, but, but that's, that's pretty soft compared to... Um, can't we be a country that doesn't elect Hitler and uh, set up concentration camps at the border, which was the narrative that was pounded 
by all these Democrat socialists and their media handmade. And, and by the way, to the extent that uh, you want uh, something other than a, a juvenile detention facility, a, a one where children are treated humanely, uh, we, we don't have, you know, ICE agents, Customs and Border Patrol. These are not Nazis. Uh, I hate to break it to the left. They weren't Nazis during the Trump administration, and they're not Nazis during the Biden administration. And it's obscene to suggest so. And it's even more obscene to intermittently suggest so, depending on who's in the White House, which is exactly what the Democrat socialists are doing. But there's a larger question here, too, which is you don't want, you want to close these facilities. OK, well, then, then what is it exactly you want to do? And what is it exactly they want to do is they want to provide a pathway and a rather expeditious one to some 22 to 30 million people in this country illegally. That's what they want to do. And by the way, underwrite their education at uh, using taxpayer dollars. That's what they want to do. Oh, no, we're going to rock down to Electric Avenue. And then we'll take it higher. Oh, we're going to rock down to Electric Avenue. And then we'll take Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I want to go back to a topic we discussed uh, in uh, part at the top of the hour with Dr. Joseph Ladapo from UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, and that's with respect to school reopening. And here again, and yet another example, anecdotal as it may be, but representative of the teachers' union's position nationally, I think it is, Pleasanton, California, uh, Zoom classes on Friday with a pending vote of some sort by parents and students, which is interesting, at least that's so reported by the ABC affiliate out there in Pleasanton, California. Students as well as parents have to agree? How much is parents agreeing that in-person learning is what they want to do? Uh, But anyway... The uh, question as to in-person learning and teachers, their end of week Zoom classes, essentially sort of surreptitiously lobbying students against supporting a return to the classroom. Take a listen. Seemed an odd tangent in the middle of a Friday Zoom class for students at one Pleasanton High School. And just one day after the local school board voted to return to at least some in-person classes. If you want to go to school for social reasons, recognize that you absolutely will not have that. There is no question that you are not allowed to interact in any fashion. You cannot work with a partner. You cannot speak with anyone in your class if they are any closer than six feet away. I cannot give you help in the classroom. So, right, so they lose the school board vote, so they go to their uh, court of appeal, and that's trying to frighten the kids to go home and tell their parents, I don't feel safe, I don't want to go to school, to get the parents to put pressure on the school board to reverse their decision. Isn't that neat? Now, again, this is not all teachers, and there were parents that were interviewed by that ABC affiliate that spoke to that, that said, you know, I've talked to other teachers, and they're excited to get kids back in the classroom. They don't take the position of the teacher you heard saying, I'm not here to help. You can't work with a partner. You can't socialize. You know, there's going to be no interaction. So without saying it, she's basically saying, so you might as well just stay home because that's what she wants. Not all, that's not the position of all teachers, and I recognize that. We don't talk in absolutes here. Everything is this way. It's all this and never that. That's kid stuff. 
But it is indicative of what we were talking about with Ladapo, just how painstaking it is every step of the way to get back to something that resembles sanity. And uh, those who present all the evidence, you don't get an airing based on the evidence. You know what you get? You get dismissed, particularly if you're a dad, and particularly if you're a white male dad in most of these public school districts. That's what happened to our friend Tim Carney of Earth, the Washington Examiner. It's remarkable. He's invited to write an op-ed for the New York Times, something that doesn't happen for many conservatives. Tim's a thoughtful guy. He's also a guy with six kids. So as he uh, writes, um, schooling is sort of top of mind for me. It's part of my everyday thinking because I have six kids that my wife and I are trying to make sure get educated. And uh, his piece in the New York Times is positively room temperature and evidence laden. He just goes through study after study like we've gone through on this show. You feel like you're just sawing sawdust. You're just forever issuing missives from the Department of Redundancy Department, but you have to pound away, I, I suppose, to penetrate the consciousness of some. And it's remarkable, too, because all of these men and women of science of data who don't keep up on the science and data, they just keep up on the talking point they're supposed to repeat. So, for example, in addition to citing the Duke University study and in addition to uh, citing the Lancet st uh, meta-study uh, about social distancing, in addition to noting that experts at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health uh, concluded three feet should be the default distance for schools, what do you get? The, the repetition, even when you're essentially goading teachers back into the classroom via their union, the repetition of the six feet apart, here are going to be all the protocols to get people in the classroom, the uh, contemplation of giving into extortionary tactics like all teachers should be vaccinated, should have a, a, the ability to get vaccinated before having to return to the classroom and so on and so forth, even though that's not part of the CDC guidelines, just on and on and on endlessly. And so he goes through this and he's provides some consideration. He concludes his piece. Teachers are understandably scared. After all, school kids are not known for avoiding germs and following every rule. But fear is different from science. The science tells us that schools can be open safely and that kids need in-person school. Mr. Biden said he would let the science speak, and it's time for him to listen. Well, the teachers, well, Biden and other teachers union beholden politicians are instructed to cover their ears, and so that's what they do. And by the way, on the spend side, oh, more money for this and for that. Good Wall Street Journal editorial. Um, the um, uh, House... Excuse me, the money that's been spent on school so far, 13 billion allocated in last spring's CARES Act, 54 billion in the December bipartisan spending splurge. According to the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, schools have spent a tiny fraction of the previous 67 billion, and of course, the Biden proposal wants to put another 130 billion in. CBO estimates that 6.4 billion of the new aid. Uh, will be spent for K through 12 schools in the 2020 2021 fiscal year. That's six billion of the 129 billion that has been proposed, and then so on and so forth years out. This is just a way to funnel more money into teachers' union-controlled government schools. Of course, it is. That's what they do. But just getting back to the Tim Carney piece, so he he goes through that and the science, and the response he gets from. One uh, pro student closure teacher, just this. 
this is the sort of back of the hand. Uh, Ann Luntz Fernandez is her name. Another dad weighs in. <laughs> and that prompted uh, Carney to write a piece for the Washington Examiner following up, Fathers Don't Count. And uh, you know, it, it calls to mind that uh, gentleman from Loudoun County, Virginia, who took the school board to task a few weeks ago, uh, whose uh, commentary, spirited as it was, uh, went viral. And uh, prompts the question again, Tim Carney's piece does as well, where are the dads in all this? Uh, and I'm not saying all the dads. Where are the dads in all of this? Some dads are involved, not as many as should be. Um, there needs to be uh, an intercession here by dads, not just leaving this to moms. And there needs to be a significant challenge to the dismissive attitude of the left and the teachers unions. And there again, I repeat myself. This is Dan Brown. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This wasn't focused upon enough in the campaign, in part because, as I said at the time and during the campaign, President Trump and the cam his campaign made the mistake of focusing too much on Biden's mental acuity and not enough focusing on his complete lack of character, that he is a pathological liar, a fabulist. He is a scoundrel, as Kevin Williamson properly described him in National Review. He lies consistently. And interestingly, the lies sort of fall into categories like about how many times he's you know, run afoul of the law doing something heroic. I mean, he's the classic politician in the sense that, you know, everything he's doing is either a, a funny story or write a tale of heroism. Uh, this uh, recent uh, interview, his, uh, uh, one of his star turns on Letterman's show back in 2007, where he talked allegedly about being arrested at the Capitol in, when he was 21 years old. What was that like, uh, walking into the great Senate chamber at 29 years old? You know, I walked in when I was 21, and I got arrested. I was a, it was a Saturday. I was down visiting some friends at Georgetown University. And uh, I came up on a Saturday morning because I was fascinated with the Senate. And they had a Saturday session. I walked up those days, no guards stopping you everywhere. And, I, and they just got out of session. I walked in the back. All of a sudden, I found myself in the chamber, and I was stunned. I walked up, sat down in the presiding officer's seat. Guy grabbed me by the shoulder, said, you're under arrest. There's no record it happened. And then he goes on to say, you know, eight years later when I got there, he's like, do you remember me? I'm the guy who, you know, tapped you on the shoulder, and, you know, Joe Biden's telling him it arrested you. And they had a, you know, a, a real chuckle over it. So a false claim of arrest. I'm going to assert that it's false. Arrested in South Africa when he traveled to South Africa to stand with Nelson Mandela against apartheid. Remember that? That, that ran right into the 2020 campaign. He threw his arms around me and said, I want to say thank you, Mr. Bi uh, Biden told onlookers at a Las Vegas uh, lunch, Black History Awards lunch uh, in February of last year. 
what are you thanking for? What are you thanking me for, Mr. President? He said, you tried to see me. You got arrested trying to see me. That was Joe Biden not only telling a lie about himself, but also telling a lie about what Nelson Mandela allegedly told him. He finally dropped it when Andrew Young, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. at the time, who traveled with Biden to South Africa, disputed his account. And, it, and, and then the campaign papered over it with what he meant to say was he got separated from his party at the airport at Joburg. Well, that's not quite the same thing, is it? He is a bad person. And I'm a little tired of, of, of allowing this stuff to be papered over like, oh, he's just a doddering old man or, you know, he's a congenial fellow. He's an amiable dunce. No, he's not. He is not a good person based on his conduct over decades that repeats itself again and again. And people should start paying attention and sharing these stories as they continue to pile up. And I'm sure they will during his term as president. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. CDC recommendations for school reopenings does not include... A suggested requirement that vaccinations be a prerequisite for in-person instruction. That was something the teachers unions had been demanding until they stopped demanding it, as in Chicago. We believe there's an obligation to bargain with the union over things that are conditions of employment. Uh, and we would expect the board to bargain with us about this. I suspect that the board is trying to figure out who's been vaccinated so they can force people off of their accommodations back into the school buildings. Um, we, we have real worries about that. California Congressman Katie Porter. She's got three kids. Fo try to follow this logic as she was explaining to CNN why the kids need to go back to school, but they can't. It's about what's going to happen when they do all go back to school. And that's where Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado and I have authored a letter to the Department of Education pointing out to them that we can't just put kids back in school as if their learning and social and emotional development has not been severely interrupted. And this problem is particularly acute with regard to math and science education. So it's a workforce issue and a workforce development issue as well. So uh, here's what I understand her position to be. Kids have been damaged by our decision to close the schools and do remote learning, remote instruction, if any instruction whatsoever. They've been damaged developmentally, academically, intellectually, socially, mentally. And disproportionately, they usually had minority children. Right. And so we need to get back, them back to school, but we can't return them to school until we undo the damage that we did by keeping them out of school. <laughs> I mean... This is this is where this is at. And and to half the country and to big cities like Chicago, New York, L.A. and California, San Francisco, Katie Porter makes sense. That's what's remarkable. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Reed Spaulding, contributor to the American Spectator and practicing pathologist. I note for the record, all opinions expressed are his and not those of his employer. That was uh, provided to him by his med insurer, I have no doubt. Uh, Dr. Spaulding, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
Thanks so much for having me on. Let's start with Katie Porter. Um, there's an admission that damage was done to kids as the result of policies supported by politicians like Katie Porter, but you can't return the kids to school until you undo the damage that was done by keeping them out of school. Right. I saw that she gave that interview to CNN, and so the question comes to mind, well, so what's the solution? I mean, if at least she's admitting that the policies damaged kids, right? For the better part of a year, they've all just kind of been acting like, oh, well, virtual learning's fine, and, you know, kids are resilient. And how many times did you read that in articles about how resilient kids are? They are. But a year later, you're starting to see some real fallout. I mean, a lot of kids have fallen behind. You know, it's been a big problem. And, and so at least they're admitting that much. But then the question becomes, well, okay, Katie Porter, what are we going to do? I mean, we can't put them back in school because you know, taking them out, hurt them. So what, what's the solution? I, I don't we know. need to build a time machine, uh, apparently, post whenever they say the coast is clear on COVID. Here's the other thing, though, too. You know, I know you wrote recently about the CDC's guidance right. for reopening schools. The CDC right. has performed disastrously during this pandemic, as far as I'm concerned. And it continues to partly because it has TV doctors like Tony Fauci that are ubiquitous. And Fauci the other day saying again, just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you can do things like go out to eat indoors or go to a movie theater and so on and so forth. Well, there are light touch states like Florida that would dispute that sans vaccination, but that's secondary. Those sorts of statements give cover for people to say, well, since we don't know if you can spread after being vaccinated, the default position is to stay in lockdown. Tony Fauci right. may say, that's not what I'm saying, but you know what? That is the implication of what he's saying. And that's what's taken, statements like he makes are taken by the teachers unions and political hacks, and they're used to continue to keep kids out of school and communities in lockdown. Yeah, no, you're right. The good news about that is there is starting to be data now that is coming out that's saying, well, actually, if you're vaccinated, you're not very likely to spread COVID. I mean, that makes sense, but there was some hesitance to just, by a lot of medical professionals, to just endorse that position, even though that's generally the way it works for vaccines. I mean, you get vaccinated, you're protected, and you can't spread it anymore because you don't really get it, right? Or you don't get it in a level that, that causes symptoms. But uh, there's been two recent studies, one out of uh, the UK that uh, found among healthcare workers that they vaccinated that like 86, 87% could not spread it. Similar study out of Israel that said about 90% of people that were vaccinated could not spread it. And this is also uh, taking into account like asymptomatic infections too, not just the symptomatics. If you're talking about symptomatic infection, the number's much higher. It's higher than 95%. So I think there's a desire from some people in media, these uh, celebrity doctors or whatever you want to call them in media, to really just completely cover their tail. And they want a 100% guarantee that a vaccinated person won't pass. Well, that doesn't exist. I mean, that, that's not how medicine works. Nothing's 100%. And, and sorry to interrupt, but, but, but I mean, the, the evidence to the journal Pediatrics, this Duke University-led study, that just this month, finding that within school infections were extremely rare when students and staff started coming back to school. And other detailed contact tracing efforts found the same thing. Kids and staff really don't spread the virus at school. And, and there's the, the larger um, issue of fatality and what we understand about it now as uh, vaccines are being deployed and so forth. And this was uh, this piece over the weekend by Marty Macri from Johns Hopkins. We're looking at uh, what we know in terms of what we're starting to come into even clearer focus than has been 
previously, the combination of vaccinations, which were about 15% of the population, plus those with natural immunity, plus those who've been infected and survived, puts the COVID fatality rate at about 0.15%, which is uh, about the seasonal flu. And, and the need to uh, rinse and repeat that data the same way that, for example, the teachers union continue to parrot their propaganda so as to create fear and maintain control of schools. It, it seems like w we need to be as aggressive and, frankly, repetitive with information like that and information like you were describing with respect to school reopenings and the American Academy of Pediatrics and all the studies, because it just is not penetrating certain portions of the populace. Right. And I don't know, maybe some parts of it, it never will. But you're right. We, we do have to really have an honest accounting of all of this situation when it's over. Let's find out when this is over. You know, what was the actual fatality rate? You know, it certainly wasn't this 3 or 4% stuff that they sold us that, that started all of this, right? I mean, that's clear. But what actually is it? We really will have to have an honest accounting of the data. And you're starting to see that. You know, the New York Times, they actually have this really nice little tool where it shows you the most up-to-date case count and death count per state. I mean, it's partly because they're into the fear business, right? So they like to give you the latest stats. But it's proving the point. I was just playing around with the different states that had different strategies are coming out at about the same level this spring. You know, if you if you compare California and Florida, completely different strategies. California, life has been hell for the past year in most places. Florida, for the most part, it's normal for months and months now. And their average, you know, their seven-day average fatality is the same when you adjust for population. It's literally almost identical. Doesn't that say something? Does that not mean anything to to people that are still taking this position that the lockdowns were necessary and the kids can't go to school and all this and that. It's just nonsense. It's not true. It's false. <laughs> You're a, a medical doctor and a practicing pathologist. How do you think your profession has performed throughout? Like anything, it's there's been some good good performing docs and there's been some bad performing docs. I think it depends on where you come from. You know, if you're an infectious disease doctor, excuse me, an infectious disease doctor, and you're seeing patients in the hospital every day, you see these patients on the ventilator. You see them crash. You see them die. You have to talk to their families. So, you know, you have a different perspective of how cautious people need to be than if you're someone who's like me that's maybe seeing other negative aspects of locking down, like people not going to their appointments, missing their cancer screenings, having, you know, X, Y, and Z fallout effects from this. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to judge the profession as a whole. I think you could probably judge different specialties differently. I definitely think some of our, uh, not our, but some of the celebrity docs that you see on CNN and these news channels all the time, I think that they have been a bit ambiguous in their messaging, and I don't think that's helped anything. I think we should be focusing more on positive developments um, and, and, you know, informing people of the good and the bad, right? I mean, there, there is good news to be had. I mean, the case counts across the country are, are stabilizing and going down. The average death rate has been cut in half in the time of the past month. So, you know, there, there's good news to be had. Dr. Reed Spaulding, contributor to the American Spectator and practicing pathologist. Again, all opinions expressed were his own and not those of his employer. Dr. Spaulding, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.
sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Are you ever curious as to why it always seems like America is lurching left and it's just a question of the pace? Government is always growing. It's just a question of the pace. Your individual liberties are always shrinking. It's just a question of the pace. Why is that happening, regardless of who's in power? The pace differing just a little bit depending on who's in power, perhaps with the exception of Trump, where he's able to do all that he wanted to do, and some of it, I, I, which, I, of course, I don't agree, but at least he understood what was happening. Now, not on the spend side. He was just as bad as all these Vichy Republicans, was not concerned with entitlement reform, was not concerned with reigning in runaway government spending, was Keynesian when it came to all this printing of funny money. Wrong. Maybe a second term would have been different. Unfortunately, we won't ever know. But I do know this. I know the answer to the question I pose about why we're always lurching left is contained in the embodiment of politicians like Mitt Romney. Writing in the Wall Street Journal in opposition to Joe Biden's $2 trillion package of funny money, of which more than a third has nothing, will not be spent in the immediacy, has nothing to do with pandemic response, even by the generous estimates of the Congressional Budget Office. A third. Mitt Romney uh, trying to offer the sensible compromise position. Don't be a communist, be a socialist, is the Mitt Romney position. Senate Republicans will support whatever is needed to expand COVID testing, accelerate vaccine delivery, support health providers, and will likewise support robust assistance for those who've been crushed financially by the pandemic, including by losing their jobs. We propose a $618 billion compromise measure that matched President Biden's proposed health and vaccine funding, extended federal unemployment benefits, provided economic relief for those of the greatest need, including nutrition funding, small business assistance, resources to get children safely back to school. And we stand ready to negotiate a plan that helps America recover from this dread disease and so on and so forth. In other words, we start from most of your premises and we want to print money, too. We just want to take a more leisurely gate down the path to serfdom, more specifically the road. If I'm going to be Hayeki in here, he's got some erstwhile conservatives on board with him in pertinent part, consistent with that philosophy to the extent it's discernible. unless if you call surrender a philosophy, I suppose, uh, Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton, from Arkansas, proposing, uh, I'll see your $15 minimum wage mandate federal and uh, walk you back to how about a $10 minimum wage federal? How about we phase that in a little bit more slowly? And we look at going from $7.25 an hour to $10 an hour by 2025 and then index that to inflation every two years for bumps. Because we don't disagree with the premise that the federal government can set wages by fiat. We just want a slow walk to the place you're at today. Isn't that inspired? Is that good public policy? Is there any principle at stake in this discussion? There doesn't seem to be. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author, noted economist. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Bill is – we don't need another penny, folks. I mean, that's the problem. You know, I, I listened to that, that uh, list of things that Mitt Romney um, and uh, I mean, some of these other senators want to spend – Republicans want to spend money on. And it's like, we've already done that. 
We've already done the vaccine distribution funding. We've already provided nutrition assistance and rental subsidies and aid to states and cities. We've already spent $50 billion for the schools. You know, this is just on top of all of that. It's like the cherry on top of the Sunday. It's a, it's a $1.9 trillion cherry. And, and, and you're right, Mitt, Mitt's saying, what? no, not $1.9 trillion, uh, $600 billion uh, cherry. Uh, we don't need more money. We've got to get the vaccine out there. I love what the Wall Street Journal said uh, the other day. I think it was Friday that uh, by mid to late April, anybody who wants the vaccine will pretty much have access to it. That is the stimulus. But you're right. This idea that somehow we're going to we're going to make everything whole by by spending 1.9 trillion. It, it's it's amazing to me how generous politicians are with other uh, other people's money. I mean, there's just no end to how generous they are and big hearted, big hearted people. These <laughs> these re- these Republican Neros are a real problem uh, and cotton signing on to, you know, a, a slower phase in of a minimum wage increase is, is ridiculous. And he's doing it under the guise of, well, we're going to go after employers who will hire illegal immigrants. So we'll provide more jobs for yeah. Americans at a better rate. That's, that's a bunch of nonsense. And we have too, we have too many people indulging these nonsensical Nero Republicans. And it's, it, it, it will lead to two things. One, uh, Democrat majorities for a long time, and two, the end of America as we know it. Uh, not to be hysterical yeah, I mean, here, but I mean that's the reality. Well, this is a pretty dangerous moment, folks. I mean, you're not you're not exaggerating. I mean, these numbers are so large that we can't even comprehend them. But you know, when I first came to Washington, it was we talking millions and billions. Now we're talking about in the billions of trillions of dollars. We're talking about taking our national debt to thirty trillion dollars. We're talking about borrowing in one year more money adjusted for inflation than we borrowed to finance the Revolution War, the Civil War, World War One, World War Two, and the Vietnam War. I mean, come on, these numbers are just so outrageous. Do you remember, you know, when you were talking, Dan, it reminded me of, you know, after the eight years of Reagan, and, you know, Reagan rebuilt the American economy, won the Cold War, you know, it's just this amazing accomplishment, and, and really relying on freedom and the private sector and free enterprise to do it. And George H.W. Bush you know, ran as successor. And remember, he said, we're going to have a kinder and gentler nation. Remember mm-hmm. that? And I remember what Reagan, remember what Reagan said, kinder and gentler than who? <laughs> Come on, what's kinder and gentler than rebuilding the economy? You know, and why are you going to be kinder and gentler with other people's money? So, you know, there's no generosity. In the, if these politicians were so generous, why don't they put up some of their own money? I mean, Mitt Romney's rich. Well, be, be wary of politicians who speak of their compassion through government, their kindness exactly. and their genteelness through government. Those historically have been the greatest thugs to ever be visited upon the countries over which they lorded. That, that's sort of what I'm talking about. And, and it comes in, in, in all sorts of forms, including the identitarian form. And just going back to some of the hidden gems in this $1.9 trillion, the Biden plan, would pay 120% of any government or government-backed loan for farmers or ranchers considered socially disadvantaged, which the bill defines as black, Asian-American, Hispanic, or native farmers. In other words, <laughs> they're going to pay off the farmer's debt and give them an additional 20% mean, bump but, on but, top wait, of that. Wait, hold on. Are you saying that if you're white, you don't get the money, but if you're black or Hispanic or Indian or Asian or white? I mean, well, 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 that's what what's I'm, happening to our country? No, I mean, well, wait, wait a second. Wait, wait, but just, just, to <laughs> let, just so we get the details here. 20% bump on being an addition to having the debt paid off. And, and it, it's the argument is this is for farmers who were overlooked in other programs, including subsidies given by, uh, by the Trump administration right. with right. respect to tariff policies. Well, you have to prove that. You don't just get to, I'm sorry, were black or Asian American farmers not provided subsidies uh, through the Trump administration? I don't remember any such legislation. 
but, but also, I mean, have you looked at what's happened to the commodity prices? I mean, yeah, the, exactly. the price of corn and wheat and soybeans, they've been rising. A lot. The farmers are doing just fine. I mean, look, they've had a tough year. Everybody's had a tough year. I mean, are we going to bail out everybody? I mean, why don't we just have GoFundMe for the farmers, for the uh, for the small businesses, for this and that? I and mean, there are those out there. And the American people are charitable. They, they can provide money to people in a, in a, a better way than, than these government things can. Uh, so uh, just to quickly going from central planning with respect to fiscal policy to central planning with respect to monetary policy. I mean, the the latter is no better than the former, but that's what Jay Powell telegraphed yesterday, didn't he? Yes, Powell is basically saying pedal to the metal. We've we've uh, printed six uh, trillion dollars. We've bought six trillion of assets, so the Fed balance sheet is growing. We're seeing. If you don't think there's inflation, he said, "Ah, gee, I don't see any inflation. Do you see any inflation out there? Has he bought a gallon of gasoline? Has he gotten a fill up? I mean, you know, just in the last since the election day, gas prices. I just looked up this number this morning. Gas prices are up about forty to forty-five cents a gallon just since election day. That, to me, is inflation. Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist, economist, and Trumponomics author. Steve, thanks as always. See ya. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We continue our efforts to promote the idea of education steeped in the humanities as well as the hard sciences, the canons of Western civilization, concepts like objective truth that are under assault, and uh, Fund for American Studies is one of the uh, organizations that uh, promotes some of those same philosophies to the well-rounded individual, the well-lived life, the uh, well-organized free society. Pleased to, in, in furtherance of this discussion, pleased to be joined by Dr. Ann Bradley. She's the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director at the Fund for American Studies. Dr. Bradley, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, you um, are uh, working in the space of uh, teaching economics, and um, boy, that is, speaking of things under assault, um, I, uh, this story out of Oregon is uh, not new, but it's disconcerting that it's not new. The Oregon Department of Education encouraging teachers to register for courses that uh, train them in ethnomathematics, arguing, among other things, that white supremacy manifests itself in in the focus on finding the right answer. And um, the concept that mathematics is purely objective, that is unequivocally false, and teaching it is even much less so. Uh, This is according to the toolkit that informs the education of educators. Well, you can't really have an intelligent discussion of economics without using at least a little math. So if we can't start from some of the baselines, it's hard to make sensible public policy or even have a sensible conversation about public policy, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, this, this notion that you're speaking of in this particular case is troubling because it, it implies that we can all come to our own conclusions about anything, whether it's two plus two equaling four or the efficacy of the stimulus bill and, you know, minimum wage policies. And so what we really focus on with our students in the classroom is teaching the basics of the economic way of thinking that there are truths about human nature and about the way the world works. And if we ignore them and then just kind of go on and try to craft policy, we're, we're not going to hit our targets. In fact, we might create unintended consequences that actually harm the people we intend to help. So starting with the truth and the objective facts is essential for crafting policy 
and the behavior of governments and citizens in an effective way. Yeah, I, I like the uh, uh, sort of mon or, or slogan that um, another think tank that uh, a think tank that sort of thinks along the same lines as uh, so many of the programs at the Fund for American Studies. That would be the Acton Institute. I like their slogan, connecting good intentions to sound economics. The two do not have to be mutually exclusive, but they do have to be connected. So you want people to make more money, but that doesn't mean you can't that you can ignore a economically sound discussion of, for example, since you brought it up, minimum wage laws. Yeah, I'm a big fan and partner with the Acton Institute for a variety of things. And they're also kind of thinking along these lines. So I think that's right. We have to take our intentions and match them with the truths of economics. That You know, what we talk about in the classroom with our students is what are the economic realities that we face as human beings? And if we ignore those, for one, we live in a world of scarcity. <laughs> and I think sometimes when it comes to government policies, we act as if the government can kind of magically create resources and pay for things. So with minimum wage policy, the question is, yes, we all want people at the bottom of the income distribution to earn more money. I think we can all agree that that's a good goal. And what economics is about is kind of understanding the best means for doing that. And so, you know, kind of one of the questions we raise in the classroom is, if it were easy to just raise people's wages by a policy decree, then wouldn't we already have done that? And why not do it at a much bigger level? I mean, instead of going to $15 an hour, why don't we go to 50 Because that would actually help people a lot more. It would be a huge increase. Right. And the reason why is because we live in a world of scarcity. Yeah, right. Why, why be so stingy? I mean, if, if you right. could just, yeah, if you could just confer money by fiat uh, that somebody else is going to pay for, then let's make everybody a millionaire. I mean, what, you know? Uh, what, 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 there should be no limits based on right, that, what are we uh, that, for? that approach. Right. Well, and, and so, so yeah, I, you know, these sort of these foundational concepts that uh, have um, fallen out of fashion, um, you know, one, you say we live in a world of scarcity. There's more of, uh, there's always more demand for uh, than there is supply of things that are in demand. Um, the other, and we're seeing this play out in a lot of ways that are not necessarily strictly economic is the concept of opportunity cost that uh, we also live in a world of trade-offs. I couldn't agree more. And again, this is a fundamental principle that we have to embrace in our thinking. There's always trade-offs. So back to the minimum wage example, if we are going to do that, if we decide that this is a good idea, then we have to realize what we're going to give up. Uh, when we come back with uh, Dr. Ann Bradley, the academic director of the Fund, uh, the fund for American Studies and um, uh, the Foundation for Teaching Economics, I want to talk a little bit more about what it is like to try to advance an understanding of, of basic or even intermediate level economics in the in the current educational environment. More on the Dan Prop Show right after this. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society, offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Ann Bradley. She is the George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director at the Fund for American Studies. She uh, also uh, works to in enhance the impact and reach of the Fund for American Studies at the Foundation for Teaching Economics. 
And uh, that's where I wanted to pick up our discussion, uh, Dr. Bradley, the uh, efforts to impact, to enhance the impact and, and reach uh, through the uh, steeping uh, people in the, in an education and economics. And, um, you know, what the challenges are, uh, the most pronounced challenges are with respect to that sort of baseline economic education that really is a requirement to be functional no matter your professional pursuits? Yes. At the Fund for American Studies, we really do deal with this in a unique way in that we have students who come from a variety of different schools across the country and all sorts of different high school backgrounds. And so we don't know what their exposure is when they come into the classroom. And so it's been really fun to create a class that both reaches people who've never had any economics, but also challenges people who have. And so I think what we try to do is, is create this blend of the economic way of thinking and some of the more maybe sophisticated ideas in economics. For example, we don't know everything we need to know. That sounds very basic, sounds very common sense. But again, when we get into policy, we often act as if government agencies can tinker with the economy in ways that will make it more productive, as if they can know what needs to be done. And so I think one of the other really important ideas is that the economy is not an engine that we jumpstart. You know, if your car breaks down, you get a jumpstart, it goes back, uh, gets back running. And I think we treat often the economy as something that we just need smart people to tinker with the policies. And then the policies will work. And so that then opens up a debate. And I think students across the country kind of come into the classroom thinking this, which is that it's really just about then getting the smart people who are ideologically aligned with, you know, what they think the right answer is. And that those people, when we put them in charge, can direct economic growth and human flourishing and equality and all of those things. But the fundamental misconception there is that the economy is not an engine. It's not a designed system that smart people can tinker with, but rather it's an emergent order and it starts with individual action. And so that's really what we try to focus on in the classroom is how do these policies affect individual people? And when you tie it back to the unique individuals, then we can start to have a really interesting conversation about uh, community level initiatives and what's going on in different towns and cities and how do we apply economic principles to those unique problems. And it seems to me too, you know, it's just like getting people to ask the right questions to pursue, mm-hmm. you know, uh, an understanding of a particular issue. So, uh, and, and, and the questions that pop up almost no matter what the public policy challenge you're trying to solve, uh, no matter what it is. So for example, uh, questions I always think to myself, how does the money flow and who gets to make spending decisions? You know, so where does the money come from and who's making the spending decisions? So, and you think about that, for example, in the context of K through 12 education. Okay. How is the school funded and who is getting to make the spending decisions for kids education? And so then you have a discussion about, you know, t- t- centrally planned government school system versus a system like we have at the collegiate level where there's money attached to the kids and parents and the kids make the decisions and so forth. Th- those implications of spending power, uh, dramatically, uh, uh, well, they determine and, and they determine the, the nature of the system you're describing and dramatically impact how it operates, for example. Absolutely. And so what you just described is a story of incentives, right? So when we understand where the money comes from and who gets to decide how the money is allocated, then we have a story that unfolds about who has the incentive to make it successful, 
you know, by whatever benchmark we're using. So in education, we're looking at graduation rates. We're looking at math abilities and science abilities and all these types of things. And as you pointed out, in publicly provided primary education, it is once you're in that system, it is kind of a command and control system. And so who has the incentives? It's kind of different than college. It's, you know, the parents are the kind of removed taxpayers. The students have a role, but the teachers, and in particular, if you're in a district with teachers unions, so uh, they have very powerful incentives that often run against the objectives, which is high graduation rates, high student performance, et cetera. And so I think that's a really great example of where once that, you know, once you're in that command and control system, the incentives for performance are altered in uh, a way that they wouldn't be if you had a private market. So so with everything that we, we know and we see happening in K-12 through education and, and certainly the college campuses, and it's actually sort of happened at the college, at the collegiate level, and it's now down to the K-12 through level in terms of um, schools being incubators for political activism more so than institutions of enlightenment. Uh, how does that impact the work that you do and, and sort of the students that you're getting? This is such a great question, and it's something that I've really wrestled with in the TFAS classroom because what I've mentioned before is, you know, people are coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, and that makes it different than if I had a student who was in a 300-level class, I would know who their other professors were and what they had been exposed to. So what's interesting, I think, when you walk into an economics classroom, I think you have a couple of feelings as a student. One is you might not be that excited about it because you think it's going to be all math and no ideas, which we really try to counter that. Math is important for what we do, but it's not everything. And that it's ideologically driven. And, of course, economists are people. They have ideological opinions. So what we try to do in the classroom is say, you know, your decision about how you feel about how we fund K-12 through or minimum wage or what the next stimulus bill should be if there should be one, those are your decisions as a private citizen to make. My job is to teach you how to think like an economist about those decisions. And so what I tell my students is, let's take the ideological hat off. Whatever yours is, it's yours to wear. And I have, you know, it's not my job to change that. But my job is to say, you need to think about this like an economist. And I do think this really opens doors because students come in with very charged opinions. And if they view you as an economics professor as a threat to what they already believe, to their priors, then you're going to be met with resistance. I think that's a sound approach. She is Dr. Ann Bradley, George and Sally Mayer Fellow for Economic Education and the Academic Director of the Fund for American Studies. Uh, She uh, works to enhance the impact and reach of Fund for American Studies and Foundation for Teaching Economics Education programs through courses, seminars, videos, social media, as you were hearing her describe. Dr. Bradley, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. Podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. And uh, to close out today, and following on our conversation with Ann Bradley from Fun for American Studies, uh, encouraging note from a college campus, which we're not often able to share. So we try to identify and um, disseminate where we can. Coming from the University of Chicago, 
and uh, it is in the form of an online journal created by conservative and libertarian students at UFC, University of Chicago, called the Chicago Thinker. Not something you get a lot of in Chicago generally, including at the University of Chicago, but I would say the corporate boundaries, within the corporate boundaries, as evidenced by the performance of the city. The uh, mission statement of Chicago Thinker, we demand not to be coddled. Embracing the experience of unfettered inquiry and free expression is precisely the point of these years of intense study to rigorously confront and challenge our most deeply held beliefs and to emerge from the experience as more thoughtful, informed human beings. Uh, I like it. I, I like it a lot. And I say that as somebody who was part of a group of students who founded a uh, independent alternative to the daily campus paper when I was a, uh, a young uh, skull full of mush, had that brush limbaugh. Uh, matriculating at Northwestern University uh, across the way from University of Chicago in Chicagoland. And uh, we founded the, the, the Daily Northwestern is the paper, Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, where you get so many political activists impersonating journalists from the allegedly vaunted Medill School of Journalism that go into the D.C. and the D.C. press corps and all of its uh, – effectively subsidiaries throughout the country, including in Chicago. So when I was there, um, you know, it was me who was an economics and poli-sci guy. And interestingly, a lot of now doctors, like uh, a friend of mine from Arizona, who's now a urologist, a friend of mine from L.A., who's now a heart surgeon, a friend of mine uh, who is now an engineer. So it's so interesting that uh, we uh, decided to do a newspaper on campus to challenge the Daily Northwestern. None of us were journalists or had any interest in being journalists. And I think our work product held up pretty well against, uh, against, and not just editorial content, against the Daily Northwestern because we had an agenda, as we were describing with Ann Bradley, of trying to identify what's true and what is not. Ironically, the motto at Northwestern University is qualcom on vera, which is Latin for whatsoever things are true. And we tried to emulate that something the Daily Northwestern, and frankly, a lot of the professors chose not to. So this plucky band of libertarians and conservatives that want to challenge themselves and others to think, and hopefully constructively, with the Chicago Thinker outlet is encouraging. I wish there was more of it. Maybe this will spark more of it. I was, it was fun to be a part of it when I was an undergrad, and it you know made me a better thinker. It, uh, you, you need to be challenged with anything if you want to refine your abilities, whether in the art of uh, debate or the art of reporting or any other art. And so good luck to uh, those uh, galtists, if you will, at the University of Chicago. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do continue to stay informed so you can act courageously and we can live freely. And join us again tomorrow for another edition of the program. This is the Dan Proft Show.